let's turn our attention to something that uh, is really alarming. Perhaps you dropped off your um, lovely child at school and you do think of them as a child because they're your kid. They're always going to be your kid, no matter how old they get at a university or a college campus last week or the week before. And you're thinking, oh, I remember what it was like and it was so exciting. And this year is going to be different because of COVID. But then you find out uh, yesterday via the news that there has been unsettling reports at Western University of sexual assaults over the weekend. And uh, in some cases, there's uh, reports of alleged drugging and sexual assaults. So Monday, London Police Service said it has opened an investigation into the alleged sexual assaults at Medway Sydenham Hall. It's a residence building at Western University. Um, though it had not received any formal reports tied to allegations, we talked about how important it is to make sure that you file a formal report if you want the police to get involved. However, um, these reports of sexual violence first emerged through a series of posts on social media, finding out now that um, there were some investigations into some sexual assaults at Western University. And that happened last week and some arrests have been made, but they are apparently unrelated. Now this story is to continuing to develop and I, you know, I have been trying to get as much information as I can, but I'm kind of limited right now because uh, we are limited to what's um, what's being reported. And when there's an investigation going on, uh, it comes out in dribs and drabs. A lot of it is, uh, you know, student reports and some of the kids' stories don't match up. And that's probably because, you know, maybe they they weren't adequately um, interviewed yet. Maybe they heard something from a friend who heard it from a friend who. Julie Lalonde joins us right now. She's a public educator, activist, and author. These are seriously disturbing stories coming out of Western University, but they could happen on any university uh, campus, Julie. So I'm happy that you could join us to talk about it. Yeah, and they are happening on campuses across the country. I started grad school in the early 2000s when at Carleton University here in Ottawa, where I'm based, and a man came on campus, attacked a woman in a lab, um, left her for dead. It was horrific. Um, he was never, ever apprehended, but it blew open the major gaps in services that existed at Carleton. And the work that I did there in the early 2000s built on the work that other folks had done there in the 90s. So we know that campuses are a really dangerous place when it comes to sexual violence. Um, and every once in a while, you have an extreme case like what happened at Western. But it's really important to remember that it's not that Western is inherently more dangerous than any other campus. This is absolutely happening across the country, especially in the first few months of school. Do you think that students are heading to universities and college campuses uh, and, and even their parents with a false sense of security that uh, it's it's kind of like it, it's in its own bubble. I think some do. Uh, I would say not all. I mean, in my experience, for example, I moved from my small community to Ottawa. I absolutely should have lived in residence, but my parents were terrified um, mm. because they had heard how dangerous it was for young women to be uh, living alone on campus. So I do think there are parents who think, you know what? Yeah, the campus will protect them, especially for campuses that are kind of their own little communities. Um, where you know you you basically work and go to school and party and all of the same places. There's a sense that it's almost like a small town. Um, but I do know that there are many many parents who dropped their daughters off at school last week with that nervous anxiety, that fear, because they know it's happening. 
What kind of support is typically available for students on campus when it comes to reporting and dealing with sexual assault and harassment? Well, thankfully, as of a few years ago and here in Ontario, we have legislation that says campuses must do work on sexual violence. They must have folks who are trained to deliver prevention trainings, but also supports. So we know there are formal supports, you know, whether it's a crisis line, um, a counselor that folks can go and see, uh, you know, Zoom support that you can do. Um, so we know those, those services exist, but we know that when it comes to sexual violence, people chronically underreport, which is why we hear about it through the grapevine or social media before formal reports are made. Um, and in the context of campus in particular, there's a fear that if I report this, will this impact my ability to um, go to school? Will this impact my ability to live in residence if the mm. person who harmed me lives on my floor? Uh, there's a lot of fear in putting it in paper. And that's why we often hear about informal reports before we get the the paper ones. It's interesting because uh, Western University says first year students were given extensive sexual violence education and prevention programming during orientation week. So you have to wonder if we're talking about an investigation into at least four uh, cases of alleged sexual assault and uh, some arrests made, uh, you know, where where they're going wrong with their education is it is it uh you know students are skipping out on that you know where the problem lies well i just think it's naive for us to think that you are 18 years old you've lived 18 years on this planet and one hour long training on consent is going to make you change all of your behavior Mm -hmm. uh the reality is we need to have these conversations early and often We know that the first year of university is a very, very important time for young men. So young men who committed violence against women before university, if they arrive in a climate in which it is actively condemned, then they are less likely to continue to commit versus young men who never committed if they come to campus and there's a vibe in which this is absolutely condoned, um, this is encouraged, in fact then we know that that will, um, that they will join that behavior. So like, it's a very, we talk a lot about first year university and young women and keeping them safe, but we don't actually talk about what the research tells us, which is it's also a really important time for 18, 19 year old men where they figure out what is cool, what is acceptable. Um, what am I allowed to do? What are the, the, where do I draw the line? Um, and we don't focus on that piece. And we think that, yeah, someone like myself coming into campus, doing an hour long training, 500 people in one room, that doesn't, undo 18 years of socialization. Maybe this is incredible, not incredibly naive of me to say, uh, but I, I mean, I just think by 2021 and what you hear from young people, how savvy they are uh, when it comes to consent, that, that the young boys would already be operating from a perspective of they know what's appropriate and what's inappropriate. So what we're talking about here are people that are ignoring uh, all of the messages that have been imparted uh, upon them. Absolutely. And I do think that we need to recognize that not everyone is showing up, you know, woke to university at 18 and having had that consent education. We know that consent education in schools was made controversial in Ontario. So many parents opt out from their children getting that education. So we have to talk about that piece as well. Um, But again, it's that group mentality. uh, And it's the real the sense that it's a myth that perpetrators of sexual violence don't know what they're doing, right? There's this, this really annoying myth that's come out over the last few years with Me Too, which is this idea of like, oops, I didn't know that what I did was wrong. Uh, and again, research shows that is not the case. Um, people who violate consent know they're violating consent. 
Um, and when you're looking at stories like what came out of Western, we're talking about people who say they've been drugged, um, who were fed very strong drinks. Like there's an intentionality there that mm-hmm. needs to be addressed. Okay, so we've heard from the police several times, unless there's a complaint made, a formal complaint made to the police, it's very hard for them to act on things, you know, that are said in social media. It doesn't necessarily have to do with this case, but in, in the past, we've heard that. Why uh, would someone not feel comfortable going to the police? Like, what's that process like? Can you give us some insight into that? Absolutely. I can give you insight as someone who has tried to contact police for intimate partner violence, um, as someone who is incredibly privileged and was still dismissed. So we know that conviction rates for sexual violence in Canada are as the lowest in the country, second only to manslaughter. So we know the threshold of proof is very, very high. We know that we just victim blame writ large across the country. So if you were also drinking, if you had slept with this person before, um, if you had flirted with that person earlier in the evening, um, there's a sense that no one's going to believe me. They're going to think I lied about this. Um, And often victims actually blame themselves. They think, you know, I shouldn't have drank so much or you know, it wasn't that bad. People I know have had it worse, so it's not worth reporting. Um, There's also myths around statute of limitations. So because we're so close to the US, many Canadians believe that their laws are the same as here. There's no time limit in Canada on reporting sexual violence. If you were reported, if you were sexually violated as a child and you want to report it as a 21-year-old, you absolutely can do that. So there's a lot of myths around sexual violence and around the legal system that make people think it wasn't bad enough, there's, I don't have proof in the traditional sense of the word. I'm not a perfect victim. Um, and therefore, the police are not going to help me. They're going to blame me. And so I might as well just keep it to myself or live in denial and hopes that that means that it won't impact me. I feel like COVID has compounded th- this problem uh, in the openness uh from parents to kids. In in some cases, we've never seen parents closer to their kids than we have during COVID. But I think a lot of parents that I talk to that have dropped their kids off for first year university or their kids are going into, you know, late years of high school, they just feel like their kids have been through so much and there isn't a lot to look forward to. And university, at least your first year of university, you know, really spreading your wings, getting out there and, you know, taking life on is an exciting time. I think, do you think that that may have gotten in the way of parents talking to their kids about this? And and if so, how should parents address this very serious topic with their kids? Absolutely. I think that's a really, really great point. And certainly, I think there's a lot of parents that were quite naive to the fact that, well, it's COVID, so there's not going to be partying. There's not going to be people at bars. There's not going to be people hooking up, which we now know from, you know, not just what happened at Western, but the chaos and mayhem at Queens, you know, thousands of people in the streets. Like young people have been cooped up for almost two years. They're on their own. They're going to party hard. Absolutely. Um, But to your point about how to address this, I actually think COVID is the perfect launching point for parents, particularly who are uncomfortable talking about sex and sexuality. COVID is a conversation about consent. Like whether we know it or not, people have been talking to their kids about, okay, we're not hugging people until, um, you know, we all get vaccinated or we're only seeing our friends outdoors or, you know, with certain people, you have to wear your mask that's a conversation about consent and boundaries. Um, And so you can absolutely take those lessons and broaden them to talk about interpersonal relationships, um, party culture, lots of different things. Um, So using it as a launching point to say, yeah, we don't, you know, when we go to so-and-so's house, they're not comfortable having us indoors because that's, that's their boundary. And we respect that. And when we go see other people, they're okay if we do that because we're all vaccinated. Um, So use that as a launching point to talk about consent 
And when you normalize that language, then it's not a leap to say, yeah. okay, so when you're, you know, have a crush on someone, let's talk about it. Cause it's already normalized in your house. You know, it's hard to talk about consent when there is no ability to give consent because you may have been drugged. How do you approach that topic? Yeah, so we know that drug-facilitated sexual assault happens, but we also know that the number one sort of date rape drug is alcohol. So I grew up in a culture, and I'm sure you did too, where it was, you know, cover your drink, cover your drink always. You can do that until Sadly, come home. Sadly, yeah. I did not grow up in that culture. I'm a Gen Xer. We weren't even told about it. Okay, so there's a generation of young women who, you know, we've been taught that's cover your drink, cover your drink. But again, we don't talk about, okay, well, is that person buying you a lot of drinks? They might not put drugs in them, but the fact that they're buying you so many drinks when they know you're a petite person or they've never met you, so they don't know your tolerance, that's a flag. And we know that alcohol is used far more often to incapacitate people um, than typical drugs. We also know that, you know, for young people who are new to drinking, um, you know, their tolerance is lower. So they can like, there's all kinds of factors that come into play. Um, and so often the answer is, okay, young women just don't drink, just don't ever accept a drink from someone don't ever drink. Um, but again, we know that the alcohol is not the problem. It's the intent. Um, and if we live in a culture in which young men can get loaded and run topless through the streets, like they were doing in, in Kingston, <laughs> Um, then we know that it's not alcohol that's the problem that leads to sexual violence. It's people using it as an excuse, um, knowing that if that woman is intoxicated, she can't remember and she won't be believed. And we need to be brave enough to mm. name that reality. Is so alcohol being used as an excuse for poor behavior as well? Oh, absolutely. We live in a culture. It's so bananas. We live in a culture. If you're a woman and you drank too much and someone harms you, it was your fault. If but you're I, a young man who yeah. drank too much and you harm someone, then, oh, he didn't know what he was doing. He was just drunk. Um, and even in the corporate world, when I do corporate trainings and there's someone who was being aggressive at a networking event, so often people will say, oh, you know what? Pete's a good guy. It's just when he drinks, it gets a little bit handsy. Like we just really use that line of reasoning all of the time. And mm. we need to question that. Julie, will you be offering like a, a, I know you're, you're, we, last we spoke, you were talking about the bystander intervention webinar that uh, you have another one coming up on September 15th. But will you be offering any kind of uh, webinar about this information? Because I think there are a lot of parents that still they can be listening to this right now. And they think, yeah, but I don't have a relationship with my kid where my kid's going to listen to me like the off, the off switch is going to happen, their eyes are going to glaze over, it's going to end up erupting into them walking out of the room and me getting nowhere with them. Is that something you're considering? Yeah, yeah, I do that work all the time. So if folks are looking for that education and that information, um, it exists. It exists. You just have to uh, get in touch with us. All right. And where do they find you? Um, I am Julie S. Lalonde. You can Google me and I come right up. <laughs> Julie, thanks so much for joining us. I really appreciate your time today. It's an important topic and I think it needs to be uh, discussed a lot. Thanks so much. Have a great day. Julie Lalonde is a public educator, activist, and author.